When it comes to opening up the economies, businesses, and schools in the face of the pandemic, the key to clamping down on COVID-19 is testing, testing, and more testing. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. Once again, we're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. With more than 80% of COVID cases in Ontario and Quebec, both provinces are having difficulty hitting their testing targets. The heat is rising on both provinces to ramp it up as they slowly start opening up. Coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we take a look at the need for COVID testing, why it's coming up short in numbers, and what variables may be at play. Later on in the show, we'll chat with Paul A. Baer. He's the Canada Research Chair in Micromolecular Biodiversity, as well as the Director of Centre of Biodiversity Genomics at the University of Guelph. He's currently talking with regulatory officials about utilizing his genetic barcoding system to track ecosystem biodiversity, which could hit 50,000 tests a day. As well, we'll chat with Cameron Groom, CEO of Microbix, which is a leading manufacturer of viral and bacterial antigens and reagents for the global diagnostics industry. First, to look at the overall issue of COVID-19 testing, I am pleased to be joined by Dr. Isaac Bogosh, Associate Professor at the University of Toronto in the Department of Medicine, an infectious disease specialist and general internist at the Toronto General Hospital with a focus on tropical diseases. Now, first off, Doctor, the Premier has been calling for more testing and the province keeps falling short. What is keeping people from getting tested or getting enough people getting tested? Well, yeah, unfortunately, there was a lot of different hurdles. Uh, initially, they just didn't have the capacity to do it. There was, you know, well-known um, backlogs in the labs. They finally managed to settle that. There were uh, problems with getting the right reagents in the lab. They managed to figure that out. There were problems with uh, limitations or limits, and they didn't have the right swabs or the number of swabs, and a lot of the supply chains were broken. That sort of been worked out. They had policies in place that said, you know, uh, you can only be tested if you have certain criteria. That's been worked out. So it's, I guess it's the end of May, and it appears that much of this has been ironed out and the testing numbers have gone up. Now the question is, can we sustain it and perhaps even expand it if, uh, if need be? Do you think we do need to expand it? I think it just needs to be done in a very smart manner and focused manner. And I think I'm obviously very pleased that now no one will ever be turned away from a COVID-19 testing center if they have compatible signs or symptoms or a potential exposure to COVID-19. The policy has changed to allow for that. But again, it's late May, and that should have been the case in uh, in early March. Um, certainly, I think uh, a lot of the capacity can be focused on high-risk settings. So congregate settings like refugee shelters, prisons, uh, long-term care facilities, people who work in, uh, you know, factories where they're elbow to elbow, even with personal protective equipment, like these kind of settings. And, and certainly, uh, I think diagnostic testing can be expanded to really look for early introduction of this infection because we know it could spread like wildfire in those cases. That's going to be, uh, that, that, that would eat up a lot of the diagnostic uh, capacity, the testing capacity. Uh, so, you know, there probably is room to expand it, but I, th- I don't think it's just a willy-nilly policy like we should say, hey, everyone who wants to get a test should get a test. It, it's got to be focused. It's got, there's got to be a policy and a plan to use it wisely. So random testing is, is not really of use? No, I don't think it, okay. it really is. I mean, uh, if you do it in a smart manner, it can be helpful. So I know there's a word people get scared of. That word is called surveillance. Whenever you word the, use the word surveillance, people think the government's spying on you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about surveillance, meaning you will 
do diagnostic testing in particular environments using smart approaches. And the whole purpose is to find a case in an ocean. And if you find a case, you know that there's also likely a lot of other cases nearby. And then you can hone in like a laser beam and start screening that greater area around that case to see if there's an outbreak. And the whole point of that is to catch these outbreaks early before they spread out of control. Uh, and and that, that t- you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. There's a lot of ways to approach this. Um, and, uh, you know, this is, there's a whole field of study looking at different surveillance techniques. And, and, you know, there's not one right path. There's a lot of complementary paths. Uh, but, you know, I think it would be extremely helpful if we want to continue to move forward, if we want to continue to lift these public health restrictions and open up the economy. This is what it's going to take uh, to do it safely, because we won't necessarily have to clamp down again if we can really detect cases and outbreaks very early before they spiral out of control. I, I'm wondering, the, the COVID tests that are in Ontario right now, are they all the same? Are they all standard? Or, or it seems that we've got a, a, a lot of people scrambling to make a lot of different COVID tests. And I, I just wonder if, if they got the, they all have the same accuracy. Uh, it's, they're pretty good. I mean, don't get me wrong. Now, there's no perfect diagnostic test that just doesn't exist, but there are a few, uh, different types of test kits that have been licensed for use in Canada. And, um, you know, there's pros and cons with all of them, but most of them are, are pretty, pretty comparable. Um, the key thing is, do you have the tools to use each test kit? So you might need a special swab or you might need a special laboratory reagent. So, you know, if the question is, you know, do we need more testing and test kits? Yeah, we should probably could use, expand our capacity for doing testing and, and have, you know, a diversity of test kits. I think the other key thing is in the, in the earlier part of the epidemic, and, you know, it still might be a problem moving forward, is this reliance on supply chains. And, of course, we know that there's tremendous global disruption in supply chains such that you might not be able to get the right swabs or you might not be able to import the right chemicals that you need to do the test. So uh, homegrown solutions are are ideal as well. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is joining us in the Unpublished Cafe as we talk COVID-19 testing. He is an associate professor at the University of Toronto as well as at the Toronto General Hospital. And you mentioned uh, reagents for, for tests. Uh, you know, the entire world is now looking for, for COVID-19 tests. Uh, do, is there enough reagents to go around? I mean, it's tough to know. I, I certainly for some tests, yes. For others, no. Um, and, uh, and you know, that it, was, it was a hurdle at first. I mean, there certainly were uh, limited, there was a limited amount of these reagents that was hampering some of the diagnostic testing that was being done. And it's interesting. I mean, you look at different provinces' policies towards diagnostic testing because a lot of the provinces we were all, many of us had the same issues, uh, but we all handled it slightly differently. And I think places like uh, British Columbia and Alberta said, you know what? Okay. I appreciate that we might not have the, um, we might not have the capacity to test in the level that we would want, but we're going to use our current capacity to test in the smartest way possible. And they just seem to prioritize their diagnostic testing in a very smart manner. And as they grew capacity, they expanded that in a very smart manner as well. Uh, and I think that I think that's uh, you know obviously the, the the right approach. Ontario is a little slower to do it, but it appears that there is some smart policy forming in terms of now you know initially focusing on the hospitals and then certain narrow uh, restrictions in, in in 
outpatient settings, those restrictions have now uh, expanded. So anyone going to an outpatient uh, center will have a diagnostic test. And, uh, and now I think they're looking and focusing on high-risk environments and high-risk uh, jo- uh, people with high-risk jobs and, and living in high-risk environments or working in high-risk environments. Now, uh, working with uh, testing and in dealing with COVID-19 hand-in-hand is contact tracing. And uh, it, maybe just explain how that works for, for the audience. And, and do we have enough of it right now? I mean, that is such a good point. Thanks for bringing that up. You can have all the diagnostic testing in the world, but if you don't have the contact tracing, what good does it do? Uh, They go hand in hand. That's a terrific point. And essentially, uh, here's how things should work. The second the swab leaves a person's nose, the clock should start ticking. Okay. And right off the bat, you need to get that test done quickly. Okay. So the turnaround time uh, should be as as quick as possible. And if there's a positive test, that person clearly needs to be notified. And simultaneous to that, that person needs to be uh, contacted by a contact tracer, which is, you know, it's not hard to do. You can train anyone to be a contact tracer. It's just time consuming. And, you know, there's a skill to it, but it, it's it's just time consuming. Uh, and essentially what they'll do is they'll, they'll chat with this person and they'll discuss, you know, who are your close contacts? Where do you work? Where have you gone? Where have you been in the last couple of weeks? And then the contact tracer will reach out to as many people as possible or businesses or locations that that person said they were in touch with. And they will, you know, they obviously won't disclose the name of the uh, person with a positive COVID test, but they'll let other people know you know, hey, you are a close contact. Not every contact is a close contact, but they will let the close contacts know that they were a close contact, that they should self-isolate, that, uh, you know, they provide education about what COVID-19 is. Uh, and I mean, it's extremely important. We know this is a very contagious infection. And, uh, and if we do the contact tracing uh, in a slow or inefficient manner, which we're doing in many parts of the country, you know, all the diagnostic testing in the world does nothing because, you know, we know that this individual has already spread it to, you know, two or three other, other individuals who will transmit it to two or three other individuals. And you can just see this expand uh, in, a, in a rapid manner. This is how we get an outbreak. So by contact tracing, you really facilitate people going into um, a 14-day period of isolation. and You really help prevent the spread of this infection in community settings. Dr. Bogosh, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. Have a great day. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is the Associate Professor at the University of Toronto in the Department of Medicine and is an Infectious Diseases Specialist and General Internist at the Toronto General Hospital. While Ontario scrambles to boost its testing numbers, a University of Guelph prof is talking to the province about boosting those numbers by 50,000. Polly Bear is the Canada Research Chair for Molecular Biodiversity and the Director of the Centre of Biodiversity Genomics, and he joins us now. And Polly, the current form of analyzing testing, uh, testing for COVID, is it too time-consuming? Well, uh, Ed, there are are a variety of approaches to testing. Some of them are quite quick. In fact, the fastest method uh, can deliver a result in less than an hour, but they're very low volume. They're two, four, six, eight samples at a time. And um, so that's, that's one of the, uh, the key problems. The fastest methods are low volume, and we really do need to look to a future where we're serving very large numbers of individuals if we're going to get uh, back into everyday life. 
Now, you've developed a genetic barcoding system to track ecosystem biodiversity, and this can really increase the number of tests that could be done. Let's talk about this system first. What does it do and how can it help? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you mentioned that we're biodiversity people, so we have been doing a very large volume analyses, millions of, of samples per year from sites around the world, and it's, it's all based on looking at particular gene regions, so we've adapted that approach to uh, COVID screening, and what it allows us to do is basically survey uh, tens of thousands of samples at a time. So... Uh, the trick, the magic is, uh, well, there's still the, the hard work up front to collect the samples, mm. but once the samples have been collected, then uh, we move on to robotic platforms uh, that can handle large numbers of samples and end up uh, pooling uh, large numbers of samples, say 10,000, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 at a time, and uh, tagging the sample from each individual with a little short designator that says I'm from person one, two, three, and so on. I mix them all up, put them on the sequencer, and uh, then the sequences come out, and we can uh, ascertain the individuals that generate uh, a positive response for the presence of the uh, one particular gene in uh, the COVID-19 genome. Now, what, Is that uh, a little too technical? <laughs> well, no, no, it's, uh, that's, uh, that's pretty good. I'm wondering about the accuracy. Uh, it's wonderfully accurate. In fact, it's based on the, the same uh, target gene region that is employed in uh, the conventional analyses. So here in Ontario, at least, we're targeting a gene called E, the E gene, which is the envelope uh, gene for the, uh, for the virus. And uh, so it's the same gene region. Uh, the conventional tests uh, use the same process as we do, basically, but they're a color assay. They're tracking... Uh, colors to determine the presence of that gene region, and we are just sequencing the gene region directly. Paul Hebert is joining us in the Unpublished Cafe. He's the Canada Research Chair for Molecular Biodiversity and the Director of the Center of Biodiversity Genomics at the University of Guelph. And when we talk about uh, this uh, system that you've developed, what would need to be able to, or what needs to be done to utilize that in in uh, the dealing with uh, testing for COVID-19? Well, you know, uh, it's pretty much uh, ready to run. Uh, it's a bit of a model shift from the current uh, program that's in place in Ontario. Ontario's moved up its, its analytical game, but we're still lagging badly behind uh, other nations. I mean, you could go to the United Arab Emirates, for example, and find they've analyzed five times more people per capita than we have. Portugal, Spain, places like that uh, are all well in advance of us, and we're sort of down with Chile and Peru. So um, we need to ramp up uh, processing radically, and uh, the current facilities in Ontario, we have 25 of them, and they're each analyzing about 500 uh, samples a day, or uh, on a good day, a thousand samples. And uh, we know that we could uh, analyze 10,000 samples per day. And the kind of place where we see this being applied is potentially uh, our premier has uh, indicated that he wants to see schools uh, back in, in operations in the fall, and certainly all the parents and kids do, I'm sure. Um, and we want to, we, you're going to need to, there are 100,000 teachers. Uh, in the system. And uh, so that's a massive increase from current sampling capacity. And that's where we see uh, our method could fit in. Uh, sample every teacher 
uh, in the system every week uh, and survey them for the presence or absence of COVID. You'll have seen just last week that schools in Quebec opened up and uh, that there were about 40 cases detected in the students and teachers, and um, they're all mild cases, thankfully. But I think we want to try and get ahead of this and, and make sure we don't have community spread in the schools. Mm-hmm. And I know parents are going to be very distressed if the, if the school system sort of falls apart this fall, if we get a second wave. Well, why do you think Ontario and Quebec struggled so much with testing? Well, you know, they're operating in a, in a traditional mode and we're not in a traditional situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're dealing mainly, uh, much of the production is done in hospital labs. It's done in what I would describe as an artisanal fashion. I mean, you can make French fries at home in your home fryer, but McCain's and people like that learned that uh, you can uh, automate, you know, you can industrialize that process. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what's happening now in other places around the world. There are really uh, massive plans for a massive scale up in analysis, but it's not based on artisanal facilities in hospitals. It's based on the uh, implementation of industrial scale facilities. And we think Canada, Ontario, Mm-hmm. should have one or several of these with the capacity to run hundreds of thousands of samples each week until we're through this. And there will be other benefits because, um, you know, I think viral screening at large is just something that we should be doing more intensively. We're also, you know, we suffer every year from influenza and we can do a much better job of controlling those outbreaks if we're just got easy access to really cheap uh, analytical approach. Paul, I want to thank you for joining us. Ed, thank you very much for your interest in our work. Paul Hebert is the Canada Research Chair for Molecular Biodiversity at the University of Guelph. Rapid and aggressive testing for COVID is crucial to opening up the economy. Cameron Groom is the CEO of Microbix, a leading manufacturer of viral and bacterial antigens and reagents for the global diagnostics industry. And he joins us now. And and Cameron, from your perspective, what was holding back the testing in Canada? Well, there, there are two types of tests, of course, the tests for active virus and for past exposure. And we're talking about the active virus tests. They're based on a technology called RT-PCR, which is generally a very complex procedure. So how many tests you can do is limited by the availability of about seven components, the, the swabs for sampling, the inactivation and stabilization media those swabs go into, the availability of lab space, trained technicians, testing instruments, test kits and reagents, and the availability of the testing controls that ensure the the quality and accuracy of the whole procedure. And if any one of those seven components is lacking, your whole system falls down. You mentioned there were there were two types of tests. One for uh, the active uh, the active virus. The other was for somebody who might be exposed to it. Correct, and and those are the antibody tests that we hear about, and and they look for antibodies in your blood to coronavirus that are indicative of past exposure. But the challenge now, right now, with those tests is we can tell you you've perhaps been exposed to a coronavirus, but not which one, when you were exposed, or whether you have immunity. So there's a very limited utility to those tests until we know more. Oh, I see. Now, in terms of the accuracy of those two tests, would they be comparable? Or would the one that just sort of looks at the uh, whether you were exposed or not, would that be sort of, a, I guess, less accurate? 
Uh, well, you know, it, it's a it's a great question, Ed, and it's answering it's a challenge because it's a little bit like how long is a piece of string. Um, when when we first started doing the RT-PCR tests using CDC's initial procedure, um, there were reports that the accuracy of that test, uh, that first iteration of testing, wasn't much better than 50-50. Um, and we've been moving it up towards the goal, of course, to get to you know 99 or 100%. Um, but it can fall fall apart on you quite quickly. And and the antibody tests, the question is, well, what are you testing for? And you're testing for one protein or proteins on the surface of the virus or, or peptides, of, uh, subunits of those protein, proteins. Um, the first question is, well, which one do you want to test for? Um, so your test can run beautifully, but be irrelevant. So the, these these are where we get into the deep science of things. You know, it, we can we can talk about tests and testing, but it, like you can conduct the test, but you still have to get the the results verified. Um, and part of the problem I've been hearing is, you know, you get the test done one place, and it's got to be shipped somewhere else to to be verified. Uh, is that part of the problem? Getting you know getting answers quickly. Um, you know, getting getting answers quickly. Um, the the tests um, we're we're actually been working up something. We we run several of these uh, RT-PCR tests for COVID-19 in our labs. And um, one of the things we wanted to do is actually film the, the testing and, and have a narration of that just to show people how complex it is and how many, how many steps are involved and how it can go wrong. Um, so many of the tests are not fully automated or, or at best are semi-automated. So there's a lot of um, manual manipulation of the patient samples that has to happen. And of course, when you put people, you know, new tests in a new location with new technicians running lots of them uh, under high stress conditions, uh, gee, what could go wrong? Um, mm -hmm. You know, Murphy is alive and well. Yeah. Cameron Groom joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. He's the CEO of Microbix as we talk about COVID-19 testing. And, and, you know, we talk about uh, getting those tests verified. Do we have enough facilities for that or, uh, or, or I guess, enough spread out around as opposed to having to ship these places, these tests all over the place? Well, you, there are labs um, in different, you know, hospital networks, and of right. course, independent lab chains in different locations in the province. There, the swabs that you see for uh, patient sampling, um, the nasopharyngeal swabs or the throat swabs, typically have a, a snap-off point, and then they actually are put in a vial of media that inactivates and stabilizes the, uh, the sample, inactivates the virus and stabilizes yeah. the sample. And then it can be, can be transported uh, to somewhere where you've got higher throughput testing or better facilities. But of course, you want to give a patient an answer as soon as you can and not have them um, putting others at risk. So this is part of what you don't want is false negatives because then people go back out potentially spread into the community and you don't want false positives because then you're sidelining, uh, you know, potentially frontline health workers uh, or uh, alarming communities or extending lockdowns unnecessarily. So this is a big part of what we do is actually creating 
Um, test controls. These are the patient sample mimics, but they're safe, um, stable, and um, and consistent that you can know if you've got a, a positive control and a negative control, you can ensure that each run of tests you do is actually accurate. Uh, it, obviously, COVID is a, a global phenomenon right now. I, I'm wondering in terms of uh, tests, uh, reagents are, are you know a key component of that. Do we have enough of that to go around? Well, there's been there's certainly been shortages of, of there've been shortages of swabs for sampling. There've been shortages of the inactivation stabilization media and the test kits themselves and the media to run the test kits. Um, certainly, there's a you know, there's a lot of diagnostic testing that's gone on, but these things have had to be massively scaled for the pandemic. And of course, one of the things that you know health authorities worry about and should is that nobody's testing for anything else right now. So there are a lot of um, health conditions we'd normally be testing for for infectious diseases that aren't happening, and there are a lot of uh, people that aren't getting vaccinated for the diseases that seem more pedestrian to us now, but um, are in fact have higher not are not values and can spread wildly if our herd immunity to those drops due to lack of vaccination. Cameron, I want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Ed. Thank you so much. Cameron Groom is the CEO of Microbix. When it comes to testing and information in COVID, it seems, well, there's some holes in the story. And it's leading to confusion for Canadians in a time when clarity is key. A new group has sprouted out. It's called the Canadian COVID-19 Accountability Group. Ian Braun is a member, and he joins us now. And Ian, what concerns were you seeing that led to the formation of this or this uh, group? Well, there was a couple things. Uh, first of all, um, there was the rather alarming news that came out of the long-term healthcare facilities, and which continues to unfold, of course, tragically. And the other was the the expectation that uh, the fire hose of cash that's coming out of government is going to lead to uh, fraud and abuse. We're not so concerned about uh, the small stuff, of course, but with you know when you got. $250 billion going out in short order, you know somebody's going to take advantage of it. Who, who makes up this uh, this group? Uh, this group came together because uh, the Financial Times had a, a legal hackathon. And a hackathon is basically just bringing a bunch of people together to solve a specific problem. And uh, a colleague of mine in the UK gave me a call and said, well, would you like to respond to the challenge of how to uh, address these abuses that are inevitably going to come to light uh, in COVID-19? And I said yes. And so uh, I and Alan and a number of others uh, quickly came together. It includes uh, a lawyer in town here called David Yazbek, some whistleblowing advocates at the Center for Free Expression, um, there's a new whistleblowing group out on the West Coast called Whistleblowing Canada. And we had a, a journalist uh, and a professor of journalism, uh, Sean Holman from uh, Mount Royal University in Calgary. So it was a pretty diverse group. We tried to make it as multidisciplinary as possible. Uh, your group is suggesting a federal and provincial ombudsman. Uh, what role do you see them playing? 
Well, ombudsman, it's, it's a role that's been around for a few hundred years, and they're typically a neutral body that investigates reports of concern from employees and tries to resolve them in the least confrontational way, shall we say, to, mm -hmm. so that they don't get escalated. Mm -hmm. And in this case, what we'd like to see is, is a COVID-19 ombudsman who can receive uh, reports of concern from Canadians anywhere. Uh, regarding the COVID-19 situation. So, for example, you know, in these long-term care homes, there have been problems for many years, and whistleblowers mm -hmm. have come up and tried to report their concerns. But many times they don't know where to go. So that's where an ombudsman would help. He would take in the complaints. He would direct the people to the right avenue if they didn't know and there was a better avenue. They're also quite good at uh, helping government spot where problems are. So if they're getting a lot of complaints in one area, they might be able to go to the minister involved and say, you know, you, you, you better go look at this. And the other thing that they can do is that they can prevent potential whistleblowing situations from escalating too high. Because quite often management will react very defensively, not understanding that a whistleblower is simply trying to fix a problem. Ian Braun joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. He's a member of the Canadian COVID-19 Accountability Group that was just launched in the last week or so. And, you know, just, just in the way I read about the Accountability Group and you're talking about the lack of information, uh, are, are you suggesting the government's withholding information or is it just, just not answering the questions? It's a little bit of a combination. It's been a long, a long uh, habit, a long-standing habit of governments to hold information close to their chest. They, it's, it's a very Canadian thing. The U.S. produces much more data and much greater, much greater granularity. So you can see in specific neighborhoods where there are outbreaks, for example, and what uh, what groups are most affected. You know, minorities or mm. the elderly. So part of it is an instinctive habit not to release information. But I, I think there's also, because of this, there's been a, a failure to develop the capacity to put the information out. And finally, there is a bit of a tendency to want to play it safe with the information. It's almost paternalistic. You, they're not quite sure what we'll do with that information, so they're mm -hmm. holding it back. I also think sometimes they just don't know. They, they just don't have the capacity to tell us the information we need. Yeah, that could be. Those numbers are uh, very sizable, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. You also are, are very keen on whistleblower protection, and, and we talked a bit about that earlier in, in terms of long-term uh, care homes. In terms of whistleblower protection, are, are, are these workers not protected enough as it is? Uh, no. <laughs> the short answer is no. Okay. Um, there are public sector protections. So if you work in the government in Ontario or the federal government, Almost any province except PEI, you'll have legal protections for blowing the whistle. They're weak. There's too many loopholes. But when you get into the private sector, there's really nothing. There are specific acts which might say something like uh, there should be no detrimental action against an employee who speaks up about concerns under this act, say the Environmental Act or the Long-Term Care Act. But they tend to be absolutely useless because they don't they don't have any obligation on the employer to create a system for reporting. They, they just basically say, you can't do anything. And I am not aware of this ever being used to protect uh, a private sector whistleblower. It's, the, the odds are just too uneven. You know, you could mm -hmm. try, but 
Ian, I want to thank you for joining us. All right, no problem. Thank you. Ian Braun is a member of the Canadian COVID-19 Accountability Group. And that leads to our unpublished.vote question. What factors have contributed to the lack of COVID testing in Canada? Mixed messages over who needs it, not enough tests to go around, or the speed in which a test is verified. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. I want to thank Dr. Isaac Bogosh from the University of Toronto and Toronto General Hospital, Paul Hebert, Canada Research Chair for Molecular Biodiversity at the University of Guelph, Cameron Groom, the CEO of Microbix, and Ian Braun, he is the spokesperson for the COVID-19 Accountability Group. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.